North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. Dr. Kuntz, are the clergy a level of aristocracy? (laughs) They should be because... They are given a very, very difficult task, and it should be recognized that with the difficulty of the task should go some degree of reward. And by that, I don't mean that the clergy should be living in opulence or something. I I really don't even necessarily mean anything material, but that people are inspired not only by a call to sacrifice, but also throughout the Bible by the idea that that sacrifice will actually gain some kind of victory, right? So Paul talks about the goal of his own ministry as the attainment of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So that has to be kept in mind. And historically, when aristocracies have functioned well, whether they were clerical or military or whatever, there have been not only requirements of, you know, noblesse oblige, the the obligation that nobility or aristocracy should feel to the people that truly they do serve, although they are figured above them in whatever number of ways, whether as officers or clergymen or possessing land or whatever, that really the goal of your training is for you to serve. And that, that doesn't have to do with whether you have to burst or something. It has to do, to do with what your overarching goal is, that it's not to just get as rich as you can off the system or something. And when the clergy have thought of themselves, I think simultaneously as servants, but also as fathers, in the words of the large catechism, they would be fathers in the spirit, that has enabled them to be inspired and inspiring, that you get much higher levels of people sticking to the ministry, but also entering into the ministry um, and remaining in it for the rest of their lives when there is something inspiring and high and uh, worthwhile pursuing about it. But that when you figure a group that should, that is of which a great deal is required, but you do not inspire them, then you will get a combination of time servers who just want whatever privileges accrue to that group, right? Think of bureaucracies of every kind, but you'll also get people who don't know why they're there. And that is destructive, especially in any kind of leadership for the leader at whatever level, the father, the pastor, the president, the king, whatever, to not know why he is or has to be who he is or has to be. I asked the question not only because we left off last episode, the first part of this rewilding concept and uh, look at higher education in our longer course on the history of education. And we had talked about how following the English and Scottish models, the American universities as they grew, not quite ancient as it were, but nonetheless active in modeling themselves after the, the ancients, um, mm. uh, that they, they were run largely by clergy of uh, ideologically and tribally, culturally, socially, insular groups that loosely thought of themselves as a Christendom somehow uh, at the same time. But that the, they had no problem kind of as a whole seeing the clergy as a uh, people who you put things in the hand of in order for right. things to be done at a far and uh, away level uh, above yourself in a, in a real way. So everything you just said about noblesse oblige definitely was part of what it meant to be clergy back then, too. So, so I ask it because of that and that connection. 
Then I had another connection point for it, which is that we do have a lot of listeners who are Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and or associate or like-minded, like-thinking Lutheran yeah. bodies. Right. And we were recently at a uh, a conference, and there was a, a little breakout that I went to, and one of the most beautiful things that was said there by the gentleman who was, I think his, his presentation was largely geared toward toward you might be new at this pastor gig in the Missouri Synod so like here man let me give you the digs okay but one of the <laughs> most genius things he said was realize that you're the aristocracy they pay you to read they think you're weird but you're supposed <laughs> to know stuff about everything so that makes it all yeah. okay yeah. but you need to come around and see them right you need to yeah. you need to go and visit them and you need to know like what they're looking for from you because you have this role within right. the civilization that is indeed valuable. You know, when you right. understand it right, it's not like it's a joke to be a pastor. Anyway, yeah. I thought it was really interesting. So he brought up this aristocracy idea, and now you're bringing up in conversation a real time where that really was the case. It still is the case. Yeah. It's, Knowing it, it's, it will help people, I think. Yeah, no, that's totally right. And it will be the case as long as we have institutions devoted to training clergy, whereby the clergy begin to think of themselves as a group um, coherently. And then also much like an officer class in a military or a group of noblemen in a country where there's a body for them to assemble like the house of Lords or something that they have local attachments, but that they also compose a group that is beyond those local attachments. And in the case of the Lutheran clergy, that was often expressed through intermarriage such that the clergy functioned in some ways, in some ways, especially the St. Louis Seminary um, and its graduates for a very long time as a kind of a caste, mm -hmm. but that the caste existed for the, the benefit of the entire group so that the kind of disconnection between the people in charge and the people out there in the hinterlands was not supposed to exist because you could be raised as the son of a district president and the grandson of a seminary professor, but you could end up in far eastern montana and that would be right because the purpose of the cast was to serve all of those correct, parishes correct. no matter how far flung or isolated of course that would be your first parish and then you'd, then, then <laughs> you'd move be, up pretty yeah, quickly yeah that's right you know, there's, yeah. there's 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 a there's a way that that system gets moved really fast. A coherent group of white people, a cast of services. I, I, w I wanted to make a joke about sacerdotalism to even think of the Missouri Senate as being this bastion of a cast of priests is really kind of fun. Anyway, moving back into the wider picture, because the inside yeah. baseball is only fun for us weirdos. We want to move now into the Prussian model, making yeah. its way into this conversation. Yeah, which is... Not at all what the Missouri Synod was doing, to be honest, despite cultural stereotypes. The Prussian model is a model that comes after the Napoleonic Wars. And it means that the university becomes truly a university and not, as Americans might think of the difference between a college and a university with fewer degrees, maybe only a bachelor's degree at a college, fewer options, less money, less size. Prussian universities are reformed, especially the University of Berlin, formed or reformed as both places for primarily research. And that research would be ultimately in the service of the state. So the Prussian model is a subordination at varying levels of formality of intellectual endeavor to the larger social or political purposes which is not at least explicitly, certainly not explicitly, maybe not even implicitly the case with say, this is why I'm founding this Baptist college in Mississippi or this congregationalist school in Oregon or whatever in the United States. Those don't have to exist for the greater purposes of Mississippi or Oregon or the United States of America, nor do they receive any money from Mississippi or Oregon or the United States of America. Can, can I ask a question? I'm, yeah. just, I'm just drifting on Berlin here. Where is the major think tank of national socialism come about in Germany? Yeah. Um, think tank. Like where does it arise? Where, I mean, I know, we all know Hitler. Okay. Whatever. Where's mm -hmm. Hitler get the idea? Who's talking about let's nationalize, socialize. Let's do that. What, what think tank, is it Berlin that actually comes up with this? The university of Berlin is a state research facility. It no, just seems no, the, because the move to state control fascinates me. And I want to know where the other tie pieces are to the history of the country that did it. 
Well, let me, yeah, let me answer that by tying it into American higher education, because okay. I think that sometimes people think that either the universities were taken over and that was the beginning of the end in our time, or that we can take over universities, public universities, and that will be the beginning of some kind of renewal, is that the universities, as Germany is descending into increasing levels of open political violence after the First World War, and then with some respite in the 20s into the early 1930s, the universities are largely locked into forms of uh, despairing analysis or irrelevance hmm. because they're yoked to a state that is neither fascistic nor communistic when those are the two most live options politically, eventually, especially by the beginning of the 1930s. And the Prussian model developing as primary state research is really more under the Kaiser hmm and what will be the collapsed empire of Austro-Hungary. Yeah, yeah, and then and then after the Kaiser, you know, the the as everyone recognized inadequate and and sort of cowed democratic socialist model uh, pursued in the Weimar Republic, but the the issue is that the university is not built and and it never was even when it was quote a research center and groundbreaking research and blah blah blah. It's not actually a university does not exist in order to break new ground. That is, that is a really short-sighted way of thinking about research. The Prussian model does that because it says, okay, you're really great at chemistry. So let's have graduate degrees in chemistry and you're going to teach other people how to be chemists. You don't have to worry about, you know, Greco-Roman or biblical foundations of our civilization. That doesn't really matter. You need to be really, really good at chemistry. Oh, now you're going to do organic chemistry. Now you're going to do this. Now you're going to invent this new subdiscipline, And that's what you're doing. The thing that I think a lot of people don't recognize, because those are the disciplines that generally are hardest to politicize. So they're the ones that people feel like, okay, I can still send my kid to, you know, behemoth university, as Russell Kirk would say. And he can get a degree in, in mechanical engineering or whatever, and it's fine. And that might be true to some degree, although it's it's increasingly less true that he won't be uh, indoctrinated uh, in mechanical engineering. But there's something naive about it. And this goes back to the whole liberal arts majors run the world is that the insight about the English and Scottish models and, and thus the traditional American model we discussed last time, which is also kind of the traditional model. It's, it's the model for German universities apart from and before you know, Prussia's changes is that someone who is actually able of finding out a big picture and articulating a big picture is in a position of much greater freedom than somebody who is simply really good at one specific thing or within one specific subject. So that would also require that a liberal arts major doesn't just know about 17th century France, right? So this kind of fragmentation and splintering enables universities to be that much more subservient to whoever is funding them in the Prussian model, it's going to be the state. It and eventually to me, in America, it's, it's going, going to be going to call up for like this new idea called administration a little bit too. Like, yeah, you need yeah. someone to manage all this stuff that none of you understand except us who've studied education. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things that you can still see growing in higher education, even as things like philosophy programs and classics programs are shut down or declared to be far too racist is you still have a growth in administration. I mean, in the in the graduate program I was in, I want to say a third of the people went into some kind of administration, sometimes at that university, uh, directly from a doctoral program, uh, which is still itself pretty intellectually wide ranging. So I think that the thing about the Prussian model, which is going to be important for the rest of the history of higher education, is its sheer subservience to whoever is funding it, whoever's right. in charge of it. And <laughs> that continues when Germany switches from a monarchy to a form of a republic. Okay. And so... Yeah. So think tank of national socialism. Yeah. Oh, I, I'd love to have you answer that question, but this then infiltrates yeah. American school thinking is what I think you're, you're driving at, right? Yeah, because when we come to imitate that Prussian model, it's going to feel exhilarating in certain ways because when you get to fragment a discipline and pursue your own sort of niche interests. It's, it's fun if that's what you like doing. The, the general overarching political problem 
is that that means that no one except a professional administrator or sometimes a businessman or a politician is going to get to actually guide the whole thing because you have focused on your niche thing that you like about this and you're not really responsible for the rest of it. As long as you're making the people who pay the bills for you go, then you're, you're right. happy in your right. little world. Which is why, yeah, you're going to have growth in engineering departments and business schools, even in after 2020 in American universities because they make money and and that's what administrators want. So right? national socialism, just the, the, the narrow yeah. question is, yeah, where's that phrase come up? Who starts, who coins that phrase? Why does that phrase get used? We, yeah. we know the term Nazi, but no one knows it means national socialists, which is kind right. of amazing. Yeah. It's, it's a way that both Hitler and so Austrians and also Bavarians, as well as a different stream that they're going to come together with, right? Because the national socialist party is tiny and almost entirely Southern when, when Hitler joins it, that's going to come together with streams flowing out of Northern Germany, especially with the Strasser brothers as the big thinkers, that's going to come together as an articulation of what is needed in a modern society. And it, it resembles fascism, which is the Italian version of this, as it also resembles phalangism, which is the Spanish version but it's a particularly German and in this way, pan-German, not just regionally specific articulation of how to apply the problems of modern economics, socialism along lines that are actually productive for their working. So rather than international socialism, which would be, which is the goal of the, just it's right there in the name, socialist international from the time of the 19th century, you need national socialism. So you're going to have the same opposition to certain dynamics of capitalism, but it's only going to be applied within a sphere that they thought would actually be workable, which is a national sphere. Right, right, right. Except for that today, the threat seems to be global socialism, um, <laughs> which is really interesting. And yeah. on that then, I mean, I, I hear a lot of people, this, this is a straight shot from what we just talked about, but a left turn from the longer conversation. Um, I've had a lot of people try to emphasize either communism or national socialism over against each other as a present threat due to their historical opposition to each other in, in yeah. post-World War II Cold War. But yeah. I'm not convinced that on paper these things are so different. And when I think of it as global socialism, it's like, yep, that, that's that's the thing right there. It's both those things put together. But I'd love your take on that. Okay. I, I, I think that it might be socialistic in the same sense that you could call the American economy after the Second World War socialistic. Mm -hmm high degrees of taxation, punitive, especially for middle earners, such that you're going to get a society much like present day California, where it's prohibitively expensive to be a normal person. Mm -hmm. It's relatively easy to be dispossessed of basically everything and dependent upon the government or to be very wealthy. Mm -hmm. And if you want to call it social, whatever you want to call that, I think that's the, that's, that's the goal. I, I thought that was called corruption. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And so it's going to be dressed up. However, I, it's usually it's usually dressed up in modern Western countries. Okay. And even sometimes they even try to pull us in Japan, which is so in the whole scheme of things, incredibly ethnically homogeneous. It's usually dressed up as racial resentment. <laughs> but the goal economically, I think, does not differ from what was trying to be accomplished in, you know, late 19th century Germany or America. By, by certain labor unions, which was not just, you know, protections for workers. And I think that that was a worthwhile goal, but the overturning of everything and uh, a regime in which ultimately only the very wealthy and the very poor can actually live. That's the goal, whatever you want to call that. I, I, I honestly don't think it has much of, I, I don't think it has much of a relationship, not even symbolically, let alone historically to national socialism mm -hmm. and its relationship to communism is tenuous. Like, let me suggest that it's the thing that's going to give rise. It's the thing that's going to give rise to this though, right? It's, it's the scenario that in Marxist thought brings about a populace that is finally so large and poor and fed up that the, and the wealthy are so safe. They think that they cannot resist it. Right. And so mm -hmm. what's happening there is uh, the embryonic, fostering of the seedbed for the strongman though. So it doesn't have to be national socialism or global okay. socialism or yeah. any of that stuff, right? It's, it's the, it's yeah. the seedbed for the strongman. Yeah? Okay. So I, the, the reason, the reason that I'm wary about that. And I, I think that I just, I think Todd Wilkin 
asked me this question and I, I'm not sure that I gave the answer that I'm totally comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, um, I forgive you. It happens when you talk out loud. Because, in, because in I think content. people... <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just trying to say, I forgive you. It happens. People talk... When you talk out loud on radio, you're going to say stuff you, you think through and you nuance later. So do it. Well, yeah. I mean, and issues doesn't... I don't have the same kind of like intellectual scope that I, that I have here. It's not long form. Really. Right. Right. Because it's not long form is that that idea that it's determinative, I think is really based on a certain way of understanding how and why Hitler came to power. To be completely honest with you, I think that's that, that's like the matrix for people understanding history because hmm. it's usually the only stuff that we're taught. And I don't see Hitler as coming to power for reasons of like, this happens, then that happens, then everyone reacts. So now they vote for Hitler. Because there's like a, there's a matrix of conservative politics in Germany that that helps propel Hitler to power, specifically at you know hit within a, a political coalition and ecosystem. That none of it is like <laughs> predetermined. When you go and look back, you could have had a Germany with lots of other kinds of things. And in fact, right. after the First World War, it was far more likely, and indeed happened in some parts of Germany, that you had communist regimes. I mean specifically Soviet is what they call themselves, Soviet republics. Those are overturned quickly. But I think when you, when you think about the rise of this or that person, I don't, I don't, I don't think that chaos leads necessarily to strong men. I think that chaos leads to reformation and destruction, mm -hmm. but not necessarily strong men. So you get chaos in lots of play. You get chaos, say in Eastern Germany, after the Second World War, Soviet troops are raping almost every woman over the age of two. Um, I'm not even exaggerating. Yeah. And what you get in place of that is simply a greater occupation. So I think when we think about, okay, what's going to happen next or what's going to happen here or what's going to happen in Portland or wherever, the entire United States, thinking about it in deterministic ways I think downplays our own capacities and responsibilities. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally want to yeah. ask you a question about that. Go ahead. Um, yeah. The, uh, but so I use the word strongman there, and then the way you described it there, it, it's kind of more closely connected to the barbarianism we were talking about before too. So you know those Soviets who are doing those wicked things, they yeah. are strong men unleashed upon a time of chaos, and there is no mm -hmm. stronger man to bind them yet, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's, it would seem to me that when we descend into civilizational chaos, the first arising of strong men are small strong men who take what they can, but that sets up the game for the next rise of the real congealer, the real, the real holder of power. Again, this would be just like trying to typify the way nations rise and fall. I'm really not yeah. wanting to predict anything. Yeah. And that's my question then, um, which is, uh, you know, how much of even our talk about the barbarians coming, I mean, I think they're here, um, yeah. is us trying to tell the future and where do we need to be really careful for our listeners' sake with saying, look, we, we don't even want to do that at all, really. Okay. I mean, I, I think that if you want to, if you want to say, okay, where does this come from or how did these people come to power? The commonality that I see between Germany in the 1930s or Napoleon, honestly, or lots of things is, yeah, there are leaders, but there are always groups of men helping him get there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and facilitating that rise. So, you know, you have to know everyone around Hitler to understand him as a social phenomenon. You have to know everyone around FDR to understand him, especially. So I think that that, that pertains to the nature of, let's not say like college as a specific version of this, but you need a place where people are physically together. Men are physically together that can propel things in a direction desirable to them. If you don't have that, then you really don't have anything that would affect any kind of long-term change because what you have in that case politically is the same thing that you have in the research university model that that prussia puts forth you have fragmentation so you have a guy that's really good at chemistry you have a guy that's really good but they but the guy that, that's good at chemistry doesn't talk to the guy that that's is right. really that's good right. at, they don't have a shared tongue they have yeah. a shared set of symbols they can't communicate with each other so they are easily ruled by another yeah right yeah right uh, weak, weak tribes with uh, dispersed dialects 
uh, unable to let go of their rural thinking, right? If we can use that term that way, as you defined it in the last episode, uh, rural thinking being stagnant thinking, not wanting to, not needing to change, and then being trapped in that. Now, I mean, we to double it down and just bring it to the present with the, yeah. the pending threat of uh, collapsing food network systems, insurance not really maybe even mm-hmm. being what we think it is 10 years from now, you know, retirement, what's that? Uh, all of that makes it e- even more challenging for the... The fragment career person to now know what to do, to now know how to see this. We're having this conversation both because we both are, well, you know, we have careers in the midst of all this too, but also because we're thinking about now's the time to realize everything that was built is going to collapse. So put seeds in the ground. Now's the time to try to gather the men to be the group of men that you need, whatever that means. And I think our listeners agree with that largely. That's why they're here. They're realizing this is the time for that. So what does then Johns Hopkins University have to teach us? (laughs) Well, Johns Hopkins is just the the first American version of a research university, strictly speaking. So the the first example, I mean, I think it's 1876 is the founding year there of something that will come to totally change American higher education, shifting it in the direction of research as the most prestigious activity, not the teaching of the young, shifted in the direction of fragmentation as in the nature of a university. So a university is historically called what it is because it contains, as the library does physically, the universe of knowledge, the things that man knows. And so you can walk into the library and you should be able to pull down something from anywhere in the library and profit from it. Mm -hmm. That's not how modern libraries function in research institutions. And that's not what universities are for. We like to hoard stuff. We just keep it all. Yeah. And I think part of the reason that um, often old books are gotten rid of is both because of a disdain for older knowledge, but also because realistically people are not they're not reading them because they don't, they don't feel that they're even there to do so. Hmm. And that there's, there's an arc, which is funded by things, especially like the GI bill after the second world war, but there's an arc really of simultaneous fragmentation of schools and studies and degree programs and knowledge that tracks right along with the explosion in higher education. So you go from it in America where in, you know, the 1950s even, you know, it's pretty rare actually to go to college to even get a bachelor's degree. You don't need it for life to a point where higher education institutions are no longer, you know, incubators for specific groups, the Baptists, uh, the Lutherans, whatever. They are comprehensive life organizations you're always going to be going back to with government funding. And that government funding, both directly to the institution in the form of research grants and foundation grants that have connections to government, you know, the people running the foundations are cycling in and out of the government, depending on the election. All those things are going to go to make something that is much more ideologically reliable and homogeneous and will be therefore decisive for people's lives. And that's why a phrase that we mentioned last time, I think, is really the key to understanding what higher education is for at this point in American history. It doesn't have to be, but it is. And that's for credentials, which is simply that you've passed through in an anonymous society certain approved processes so that you're allowed to do things that it used to take somebody no degree or a high school degree to do. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, even something where America is the origin of this, and it's not like as intellectual endeavors or disciplines, these things are worthless, but the a really good example is business administration, right? How do I run a large organization or how do I run an organization effectively or something? America kind of pioneers that. And as something about which somebody would think or write or speak, that seems totally valid to me. But the insight that People were doing that and even writing about it without ever, you know, attending a class in business or going to business school. Seems it seems obvious that mm-hmm. it's therefore kind of needless. Right. Right. But it's not needless if you understand these schools and these programs and stuff as a way of ensuring familiarity with mm-hmm. a certain network. Mm-hmm. 
um, and also conformity to the way that that network thinks. Right. So, yeah. So if you already have access to the network, you can say like Tim Ferriss, go to get the real world MBA to spend the money you've already made. Get yeah. 300,000 on your next level of education. But for the rest <laughs> right. of us, we got to get in that sandbox somehow. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So then John Hopkins is the antithesis of what you're advocating those who are thinking about the future seriously uh, want to do. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that if you pursue, so just to give you a personal example, right? I got a, I got a graduate degree in religion. That's, that is its own thing. I don't, it's probably not interesting to explain the history of the discipline right now, but that is its own thing, religion or religious studies. And what I could do with the rest of my life is pursue whatever niche I want within that. Mm -hmm. Now that would not enable me to have any kind of really critique of any institution in which I would pursue that niche because I need to be inside the institution or to have that niche, right? The, in biological terms, the modern university is this incredibly varied ecosystem with really niche creatures living inside of it, who, if they move, you know, three feet to, you know, the West are going to die immediately. But if allowed to be in that niche, they, they flourish, right? And that is a model <laughs> that really enables control over people. In that's a way amazing. That, you keep going, keep going. That in a, in a way that just is not possible. If you say uh, the thing that we really want you to know is these sort of basic civilizational uh, texts and histories, and and how to do math. And uh, if you get a degree, great. If you don't, it's also not a big deal. We'll still like let you have a job. And so that's that that's completely different where uh, life is going to be uh, much more what I make it after education is over than a system in which life is defined by validation through the educational system. And that, and higher education is going to remain dependent on those forms of validation in those ways, not only in, in, in as much as it takes government money, that's part of it, but also in as much as it participates in the systems of validation, everything from accreditation to lots of other things uh, that, that flourish off this fragmentation of inquiry and fragmentation of training in which and by which higher education continues to exist. Systems of validation sounds like a cleanliness religion to me. It's, uh, it's amazing how many overlaps we have in the way our psyches work. So from there, uh, yeah. war, yeah, war. What does that have to do? With yeah, all this? I mean, th that has to do. War is the source of the growth of higher education because it enables not just the GI Bill, which puts a oh, much right. larger percentage of Americans into higher education than had been there before, but war and the prerogatives and the desires of the military-industrial complex are what are going to spur the growth, especially in uh, science and science research and money available to science and engineering to what's now called by the STEM acronym. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sorry, acronym. Those things are going to grow as a result of the, the needs of the American defense industry, which is the source also, therefore, of really the invention of personal computing and the internet and lots of other things. So it's not that those will have no connection or that higher education research will have no connection to anyone else's life. I mean, there's, there's a research lab at Stanford that is, you know, that is the reason that we interact with personal computers the way that we do. But all of that is funded by and for the prerogatives of the American defense industry. So government will provide both the funding for students to go to college who never had before. And eventually this idea of universal college, at least community college is going to flourish for that reason. But it will also, it will also furnish directly or indirectly the funding that makes certain departments flourish that, you know, did not exist uh, in the 19th century and were not at all the, the purpose of education, strictly speaking, in an older vision of what that was. Because right, on the surface, it just looks like the country wants to have an educated populace and a way to do that is to use the funding that they have to build an army that pays them back by giving them the education. Yeah. So who could say yeah. that's a bad thing? Well, I, I think that all of that depends on what the adjective educated means. <laughs> and I think that educated, I mean, you should just say indoctrination 
with the negative connotations of that word. Because for example, like the, the spread of education in the, in the military requirements for education for certain kinds of promotion are absurd. You know, if you're already in special forces, you have been tested in all kinds of ways. You don't need a four-year degree and <laughs> you know, you, you shouldn't, but in order to get promoted to certain things, you indeed do. And so that's not a litmus test. They're not saying you need a four-year degree in Chinese or you need a four-year degree in mechanical engineering. You just need a four-year degree. So that's a test really of the extent of your indoctrination that's because right. what, what these, what, if education is always about you know, whom you know and, and how you learned what you did learn, then what they really, all they really want out of you and enforcing you to go get you know, a degree of any kind is that you have been indoctrinated sufficiently and adequately. And that that's that's what they're looking yeah, for. Yeah, you got to prove your loyalty to the clan by letting the clan tell you how the rest of your life is about proving your loyalty to the clan, which isn't necessarily bad if you're born into the clan and they're your family or something. But if it's like this massive Borg symbiotic computer tech death machine demon horde from far away, maybe you want to resist that a little bit. That's where I'm at right now. I think it also shows the the subservience, which is, I think, a little hard for people that teach in higher education to accept. Hmm. But it is always subservient to some other purpose. Right? Yeah. Um, a Baptist college should be subservient to the Baptist church. Um, a school that is funded by the American government, directly or indirectly, is subservient to the American government. So it will further those purposes. It will exhibit a greater concern about whatever that funding source we know wants, right? So this is a, a Christian school more concerned about whether or not the kids are all vaccinated than whether or not the kids are all baptized. Those are all things that, that show you that the purpose of higher education was always either, I think, a little more clearly and honestly earlier on than today was always for larger group purposes. It wasn't just about abstract intellectual inquiry, which you really could do on your own. Yeah, it's about controlling your young people into adulthood for the yeah, sake right. of your tribe, which again isn't all bad. It's just, you know, which tribe are you in and do you want to be in that tribe at all? I, I set down my list of things that we still have yet to cover in this hour. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, the, the, the military industrial complex, um, maybe to circle back on that for just a second, it's sure. almost like so tired as an idea that you don't even, I haven't heard that said by anybody in a long time. <laughs> um, I know. I'm, I mean, I'm doing like kind of Iraq war leftist hours right now. And I, I think that's because there was earlier in the past, let's say decade or, or two decades, there was a reflexive conservative support of everything about the military. And then there was on the left, a forgetting that they were opposed to things about the military now that the military is, you know, funding transgender surgery. So, so everybody's on board with that, or is supposed to be, and it's unpatriotic to say anything different. I draw my political cues generally more from what was called the old right within the context of American politics. That's, that's not the sole source of my political instincts or opinions, but it's a big source. And they were reflexively critical of, to some degree, a standing army, Yes. let alone other things. And so military industrial complex, the reason people don't see it is because it's always there. <laughs> so they don't think about it. They don't right. So phrase. I'm not sure we can distinguish it from yeah. the Federal Reserve, honestly. I mean, that's a big, wide gap to jump. But what I mean is the United States of America is a bank with an army. That's what we are. Yeah. Yeah, I, the the military industrial complex is not possible without a a magical source of funding that does not exist prior to 1913. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fun! Those are the things that get us worried at night. We shouldn't do that. Let's talk about the GI Bill instead. Federal involvement. We t we kind of did that already. Yeah. That was yeah. The same point. I think I think that's I think that's all part of it. It's it's ongoing. So and it's where the to GI go Bill here. is going to be. The GI Bill is a a template that's going to be used for other sorts of funding, especially after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, funding for various minority or protected classes in higher education. That's the template is really the idea that the government can intervene really intensively in education. And we talked a little bit about that 
in previous episodes with the founding of the Department of Education. But it's the reason that, for instance, at almost any college, you're going to find a larger number of women's sports teams than men's sports teams because they're worried about getting sued under Title IX. And all of that has to do with the federal government's involvement, whether for explicit defense purposes, um, as in the presence of you know uh, reserve officer training corps programs, or implicitly, indirectly through funding and, and, and regulation, that the government is intensively involved in higher education in a way that is unprecedented before really the second, but, but even to some degree, the first world war. You caught me drifting on Ron Paul, but what we really want to do is talk <laughs> instead uh, about, well, we got 20 minutes to say, where do we go from here? Basically. Um, yeah. Right. And, and I'll, I, I'll remember I, my Ron Paul comment eventually. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I, I think that one place not to go, not collectively anyway, is into a rejection of higher education. That is acceptance of slave status. And that the reason that the liberal arts were called liberal is because free men had leisure, opportunity, and capacity to exercise the kinds of higher thought, and therefore, maybe in our modern parlance, leadership that a liberal education made possible. And if you say, well, I'm just going to be an engineer and my kids will be engineers or they're going to learn a trade, that's fine. But you can go on with economic and even biological existence by having a bunch of kids who all become plumbers. That does not mean that you will be free or that your children will be free. So I think that it's totally fine and up to you and and your children what you want to do in the future. I think many fewer people should go through higher education than do as a percentage of almost any group that I can think of. That's totally fine. And I'm not recommending that you go to Behemoth University. But I am saying that some form of higher education, especially a form of indoctrination and familiarization and clarity as a group for whoever your leaders are, really is necessary if you want to be free. If you want to be a slave, you can just go make money. Well, your elites have to network. Again, they have to network. And if they cannot build trust and relationships, then they cannot rule you while you make money as a plumber. And if right. they can't rule you while you make money as a plumber, you end up ruled by somebody else who doesn't have your interest in mind, never listens to you, doesn't care. And so that's where you need to have elites that you talk to, right? Um, yeah, yeah. For the lowest yeah, level exactly. of aristocracy, your pastor does matter. And your congregation is a political weapon that you should use when your life and livelihood and faith are threatened. That's, that's what it's there for. It's not there to hide. Um, right. You know, we, uh, Lutherans have this idea that if we have a political conversation anywhere in the church, it means we're going to advocate how you vote as if that is <laughs> not bought and sold. You know, I mean, the, the, the kind of arguments we have right now about whether pastors can talk politics is just so beyond the pale of reality from where I'm sitting. that it, We're just waiting for the end to come, whereas we have to talk about the city, the city's turning its back on us. The city is imposing restrictions on us. The city is lying to us. And, and we continue to say, oh, no problem. The world, they're our friend. And there's something just radically spiritless in that. That's, I guess that's my concern. Where do we go? Prayer. You know, before I worry about getting Plato and, and Western Civ back, am I, am I reading the Bible every day? Do I still listen to Jesus as if he's king? Right? I mean, some of those things, I think, personally, are really important questions for everybody. Every day. Every day. And, you know, show my feathers there. Yeah, I, I just I, I wanted to say that because I I find people who have one or more higher education degrees totally rejecting higher education for their children in in a way that you know fine that's totally fine, but if you're gonna do without a group that can lead you coherently and and believes in the things that you believe in, you're gonna end up with not a whole lot, basically nothing. I mean, usually when a people is conquered, one way that they're gradually overcome if they're not immediately exterminated is that they are, they are bereaved of an elite. Yeah. They're, you know, their best are sucked into the conqueror's elite and they end up in a state of perpetual, you know, Isn't in, that where in terms we are? of, we are, we are starting from a conquered position. That that's kind of the dilemma. I think I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, and, and I, 
rhetorically saying that I, I just, I think that saying that we're conquered is. You don't think that the elite leadership of Lutheran systems, both parachurch and church has been absorbed into the cultural dynamics of everything we've been talking about from the, the priesthood of the world. You don't see that, uh, that that's I, running and calling the shots for the, the systems that we try. We we're all, both sides. We argue and we fight over what we should worship. Like we're all trying to save these systems that are actually destroying most of what we're trying to do. And I, I so I think it's because we're starting from a conquered position. These, the system we claim to have isn't what we think we have. Uh, I don't know. I'm, we're, we're, we're spitballing here, right? <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I, I didn't know we were talking specifically about Lutherans. I mean, I think, I think as, as to conquered, I think that I Americans see. are I a see. colonized people. They are colonized by an elite that generally despises them and is unfamiliar with them or how they live. Much better than what I said. Specific to Lutherans, they don't, I think, understand how weird they are. <laughs> and that's actually fine. Like, that's good. There are definitely forms of cultural and political and theological aspiration among Lutherans to be accepted, the same sort of anxiety that you see in somebody like Reinhold Niebuhr, or to be totally honest, in the context of German theology, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whom coincidentally Lutherans will cite Niebuhr and Bonhoeffer ad nauseum as, you know, guys who help us understand reality. And what I, I see in both those men, as well as in many of our elites throughout time, is a sense of frustration that they aren't more elite than, than they turned out to be and that they are uncomfortable leading their own splinter group. Now for Bonhoeffer, that gets resolved to some degree in having the underground seminary and the confessing church, but with Niebuhr or someone that starts out as a Missouri Synod Lutheran, like Yaroslav Pelikan or Martin Marty, it, it always pushes toward amalgamation with what the mainstream is. And the reason that that's not even really possible among us at this point is because of the at least public requirements of profession that we're making of especially clergymen. So if the guy personally doesn't have a problem with women's ordination or evolution, he at least publicly has to act like he does. Right. And there's something actually really good about that. So, you know, I find the significance of the 1970s battle for the Bible in allowing us to eventually, I don't think yet, but eventually become our own people in a way that we definitely were not pushing to prior to 1974. And we aren't yet, but I think we could be eventually, which would mean, I think, survival. Right. Which, as a splintered group, which at the very least are colonized people, but I would say that we are on the verge of becoming conquered then because again the same kind of things that we see now that the two many just mentioned Bonhoeffer particularly mm-hmm. uh was mm-hmm. frustrated by which is that things are falling apart there are systems that are actually turning against you that used to be for you and it, you now have mm-hmm. to work with what you've got and what you've got is different from what they've got you know over across the river over there where they got a different thing going on but you all got to try to work together but you can't and so you have to actually be the leader right like you don't have and I think that's the time we're in. We're in a time where we don't have a clear unifying leader for any of us. And so you have to just adopt the the belief that we will survive. And it's going to be because uh, you lead where you are. So that's what I'm getting at. Like when I say from the, starting from the conquered position, we're yeah. starting from a place where we don't get to all rally around some big guy at the center. We are all going to have to rally where we are as best as we can and prop each other up. And God willing, someone three generations down has the capacity that we're going to lose probably in this generation politically. Right. Again, that's just what, again, my read on all this is and why it's so important that we find ways for the men who are in their what 12 year old to 25 year old range right now, if they are Christians that are Lutherans to find ways to bind them to each other, because there's so much, so many less of them than there used to be. And frankly, the national youth gathering ain't going to cut it in terms of cultural uh, identification. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that as we're we're wrapping up this discussion of education, like over whatever 17 months that we've been doing education, I one thing that I think about is the hope that there is already and will be further repositioning where something very common in Lutheran circles, which is complaining about 
things that should be done. It's probably common in all kinds of circles. It just stops because it's completely useless. It's, it's utterly useless. If, if something is not working, then why don't you do something different? Mm-hmm. Like what, what is stopping you? Not, not the Lutheran church. It's not stopping you. It's not like it has like judicial force over you, you know, a la 17th century Germany. <laughs> why don't you go do the right thing for the Lutheran church instead of complaining about what's wrong, you know, so that repositioning to an attitude of positive activity and, and even of positivity, not as kind of just gobbledygook self-talk, but as a recognition that if you don't envision something and try to bring it to pass, it simply is not going to happen. Higher education as currently constituted is not going to provide you with Christian grandchildren. So why don't you fix that? Right. And that's, that's why, like, however you feel about uh, whatever the Concordia system, which notice that that's a school system and not a specific school, going back to our discussion of the defensive school systems and school systems over individual schools, all the way back with, you know, one room schools, the goal of, you know, something like the, the new classical college that's getting started in Wyoming is to try to do something right why do we have to be against other people who are not doing precisely what we're doing hmm. or have all the commitments that we ourselves precisely have rather than just recognizing that this is a time of massive confusion and even older people who were able to go through some sort of coherent social system of training recognize that that's broken and just build each other up in repositioning. And I think especially in renewal, right? Renewal of intellectual endeavor, which is, you know, very, very seldom seen in large parts of higher education, being able to ask and answer questions honestly, rather than according to whatever forms of political correctness are Mm -hmm. current in that place. Those things all have to happen. And the idea that just rejecting the formation of elites or the existence of elites or you know rejecting uh, the need for renewal and change those things will perish of their own accord it's why like it doesn't i don't wake up in the morning even though i am helping toward getting the classical college going i don't wake up in the morning and think like who's against this because i don't do that with anything in my life right if i'm trying to better myself as a human being, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get stronger. Um, I'm trying to eat better. I'm trying to read more, whatever I'm trying to do. I'm not going to sit around and waste my time being angry about how the version of me from four months ago wasn't doing all those things Mm -hmm. or how someone else somewhere that I had to talk to on the internet or didn't, or have never even met is not doing those things. That's not a big deal, right? Because something that I think you notice about, you go back and you look at, uh, I just use my own undergraduate alma mater in a positive way. In this case, they're trying to get a Quaker college started. So this pharmacist, Edward Parrish, rides around on a horse and talks to farmers because that's who their people are at the time. They're not, you know, wealthy people driving Volvos and they're farmers. And he's just going to ride around on a horse and talk to farmers for four years before they can open the doors. And then they do, right? He's like, we don't have this. We should have it for these reasons. Yes, this small group of people agrees on it and they went about it. What is stopping you? What are you what are you worried about, you know? And so I think that rejection and negativity or this is bad and that's bad that has such a limitation because it doesn't it doesn't promote growth or regrowth into what is natural or good or upbuilding. So, I mean, I'm hopeful (laughs) about the future, precisely because I believe that the people who will survive and flourish are the people who are going to focus on pursuing good things and not Mm. worrying so much about how awful things really, really, truly are in in so many colleges and universities right now. Because it's not even just about that. Um, No. It's about the whole society. And if we're going to be a seed of something better, uh, a generation down, we don't want to be a seed of self-criticism that destroys before we even begin, right? Right. So, so your talk about positive re-envisioning or repositioning, 
I think is incredibly important. And the caveat or throwaway, I'm not, you know, you don't just mean look in the mirror. I think even that has been so scoffed at as to lose some real value. I mean, I don't, you don't need the mirror, but to be able to know who you are with conviction and to let that then be uh, an empowering thing toward who you want to be and that you are free as a human being to want to be things like kind, interested in others, um, right. willing to smile at others no matter what. It just takes a little practice, right. takes some time. Right. So, so you can decide to reposition yourself toward positive output. And you can do that toward yourself. And that's not bad either, honestly. A lot of people yeah. do just shame themselves into a corner. That's why the alcohol use is so high and all this kind of stuff. So there's nothing yeah. wrong with, with acknowledging that along with wanting to better your health, because that will make you feel better, better your sleep patterns, read a book, all this kind of stuff, that I'm going to have a more positive attitude about myself, say as a baptized Christian, as a son of the king, um, that I'm going to try to have a more positive attitude toward others. Even if I don't feel that way on the inside, I'm going to act toward others, toward them positively, because that's good for them, right? Yeah. And then then a society that thinks like that and wants to be like that is going to be positive. Like you're not, we're creatures of habit. And so if right. all you do is sit around and complain, then all you're going to do is sit around and complain. If you would like to have a positive life, act positively for a little while. Right. And I'm not promising yeah. you know, roses and daffodils and rainbows everywhere, but it doesn't have to be the doldrums and hate that I think a lot of the spirit-sucked, apathetic people we ta- started talking in this conversation about two hours ago um, are just kind of trapped in. And I think a lot of modern Christians find themselves by habit, by habit, in yeah. those patterns. And you don't have to be in those patterns. Yeah, no, that's totally right. And the thing that I was talking about regarding elites uh, with noblesse oblige is just a, a caste specific version of what we would talk about as vocation and vocation and service do not involve the people whom I'm serving, understanding me and getting me and getting everything about me and acting with total compassion and love all the time toward me. It involves primarily, primarily, not only, but primarily that I am suppressing my needs and my wants and my whatever for the sake of this this other group of people over whom I have some authority, but uh, whom I am on a very fundamental level serving. Right. And that will enable a kind of life which is much higher and better, not in the realm of feelings moment to moment, but in the realm of satisfaction and doing something every day that is worthwhile, however many degrees you had to earn in order to do that thing. In the case of the most worthwhile things, such as marriage and family and friendship, there's no degree process involved. So, but whether whether there is or isn't, your life is not going to be defined by your credentials or how impressive you are or what you're getting out of it. That's just not the case. And a really good example of this that does have to do with higher education is the caliber of military commanders produced just prior to our civil war on both sides in the civil war. Those guys were preparing for a career that was very lonely. Generally, they were sent to some, they were very isolated in the West. They were paid almost nothing. They weren't going to meet any women they could marry, usually except other officers' daughters when they got there. And so, but but why would they do that? They would do that because they were fired by something that was far more inspiring and burned way hotter than the complaints that you could justly have about being isolated and sad and sick and in danger of your life. So I think if you want that, whether you're, you're training an elite in some kind of college, whether new or old, or you're not, you have to give people a sense that what they're doing in their life is worthwhile and good and way bigger than them. And if you do that, you can, you are going to see all kinds of renewal, I think, both in one's own self, but also in the people you're working with and the people you're teaching. Life is worthwhile because it is bigger than you. Trying to finish writing down that one you just said so good. Here's a, a you got time for one more kind of drifting? Yes, one? sir. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So, so you're talking about don't abandon higher head altogether, 
And I, I'm like feeling a bit, a little bit of a guilty conscience because I'm over here being like, <laughs> the barbarians are coming and we're going to found a college, you know, for the ages, but I don't care about accreditation and we, it's not going to matter because who knows what's coming. Actually, it might really matter. Yeah. It's all prayers and dreams. But like, um, <laughs> in terms of my kids, we're basically thinking, and you know, and I'm getting real strict realism here now. Um, yeah. My daughters, in no way do we encourage them at all to think about university or college. We're encouraging yeah. them not to and instead to pursue whatever learning they want in our home with our our direction uh you know and and support financially you know books tools go go find a discipline with a master and 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 apprentice Uh, they can learn whatever they want we're just not going to send them off to the concentration camp to get brainwashed and you know uh, sexed up at the parties right right? like that doesn't make any sense to me right it doesn't make any sense to me so so but our boy it's kind of like, well, it kind of depends on what he's going to do with his hands a little bit. So if he wants to, I mean, you can make a living in this area, just, just working with your hands. People do it. And so if that's, if that's what the kid wants, I think he's going to have a mind like his dad. So he's, he's going to want to be reading and thinking and all that. So there I'm like, okay, at that point we might have to game the system a little bit and figure out how do we walk this kid through four years of indoctrination while teaching him how to fight back in the fire. Probably not by sending him away though. I mean, I'll tell you right now, it's not like, Hey dude, have fun. Like th- th- that's not the thought process at all. Um, it's going to be your, you know, you're hand in hand with us the whole time because this is about the long-term survival of our congregation and our church uh, as a whole and uh, and having good men and you want to be a good man that's available for that so the question then is like i mean i've just said i'm looking at this with a severe un-american distinction between man and woman with regard to the future of my children in higher ed do you think that's wise would you concur in some way or am i completely off base yeah well i mean it, it, it's yeah no it's just an older american severe distinction yeah. um Co-education, the Quakers did it, but almost nobody else did it. So make it that way you will. And not even all the Quakers did it. So co-education grows, but especially after the 1960s in the United States. Prior to that, you're going to have, you might have like a parallel institution, Radcliffe or a Vassar or a Skidmore um, or a Smith, Wellesley, the women's colleges, Bryn Mawr, is that you would end up a very well-educated woman because you need to be for the sake of a certain class. So mm-hmm. girls from Bryn Mawr are going to take the train up to West Point um, and to Princeton to meet nice boys, to marry of their mm-hmm. own class, right? So even the existence of female higher education was for the purpose of a certain class where the women needed to be better educated than the average, say, farm wife. But ultimately her her life was going to be completed by marriage in a way that was not expected for men where they would have a family, but also have a vocation or or what we would now call a career, which is a telling phrase, meaning someone else sets a path and then I pursue it. Yeah. Right. right. You're a slave. Okay. So how does it go back to inside baseball? How does the LCMS's like two year programs for developing say uh, women as uh, secretaries, right? I think that's kind of where it starts. There's also some teaching as well, though. Um, yeah, uh, the teachers' steward, colleges yeah. that go on there. How soon does that kick in? Is that a post '60s thing as well, or is that predated? That that predates the '60s, and it comes in first at Seward, Concordia, Nebraska, now, and then later, I think only in the 1930s, at Concordia River Forest, now Chicago, where women are going to get the same degree as men in an LCMS school. And that is for the purpose of staffing Lutheran schools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and that comes about because I think on an ultimate causal level, we never paid men enough and we gave them a low sense of their themselves as yeah. teachers. Correct. So we never made it worth your while to sacrifice long-term and sufficient numbers. And if you were really that pious, why don't you just become a pastor? So I think we, we tried to set up a vocation and and we wanted, as we talked about in the Lutheran schools episode, and we were, we were self-aware of how male our teachers were proportionate to any other group of teachers in America, but we didn't really make it worth anybody's while to do it in the numbers that we, that we needed for our own theology. It seems that like we maybe could have done it if we stuck with the one room concept. Um, I I think so. I mean, one of the major challenges of funding higher education as of funding pastors and teachers that really changes starting after 1913 but but really after the second world war is that life daily life becomes way too expensive 
Mm-hmm. So personnel costs become prohibitively expensive for so many people in every realm of life. And that makes provision for anyone except a pastor unthinkable for most congregations. And the trigger of that is again? The trigger of that is like in a very simplistic way, the growth in inflation and taxation concomitant with departure from any kind of fixed standard for our currency. Okay. Right? So you're so talking, that, you're talking post sixties again. I was still thinking 1930s. So well, no, no, it's, it's earlier. It's earlier because, and this is why when Ezra Pound talks about what is wrong with modern life, he talks about usury as primary because right. I think that that debases debasement of coinage debases every other form of life. It makes lying and unnatural things permissible. Something we, we talked about in the rewilding right. episode and I'll go into greater detail some other time. Currency being debased. Okay. So I'm going to do one more offshot question here. And this is the kind you hate <laughs> because it's all metaphor and, and too yeah. many meanings with one word. But the thing is, this is just it. I think some of our confusion is that our words have too many meanings. And what I want to do is get to root concepts, root semantics of these things. And mm-hmm. so a word like currency mm-hmm. that we use to talk about money, that we use to talk about electricity, that we talk about personal relationships and political capital with, all very diverse ideas. And yet this word currency uh, drives all of them connected ideas like circuits and networks also as a semantic field. And then what do all those things have in common? Information, information. And so seeing that even electricity as uh, kind of the rawest information, if you can imagine it that way, the, that currency, uh, as just as a concept, is one that has so much power over us, and we don't even think about it. And so, you know, we, you know the dollar is my currency. That's that's a powerful idea, I think. Way more powerful than we give it credit for. It's way bigger than just, I'm going to trade with this thing. You know, you can trade with something that's gone and you never see it again. There is a, there's an icono, icon-ish religious-ish devotion side to this too, which I think you know well. Um, and so just your, your thoughts on that and on the word currency. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm pulling okay. on semantic field because I've, I want to find words that have real meaning. It is a lot of the quest. Okay. I mean, I think that the basic sense of currency, not just currents or what is current, which is a little different in modern English and, and divorced from discussion of money, that currency is a kind of a lifeblood for any commercial civilization. And so when it becomes as malleable as it does increasingly from 1913 onward in the United States and as concentrated as it, as it now is, it means that those who are subservient to it, which as I've been saying, I think includes higher education. They're not the wizards that they believe themselves to be. They're not as important as they think they are. That means that similarly, our, our words and our capacity to inspire people and our teaching will also be debased in, in alignment with the flow of coins. Mm-hmm. So when that flow is choked, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, <laughs> I'm waiting for something in the LCMS to be denied banking services. Oh, interesting. And then, and then we'll really see, you know, what is oh, what. You, oh, that's interesting. Now we're back in the future again. Okay. Yeah. That, yeah. So for that reason, because as long as the currency can still flow to you under some sort of not seemingly horrible conditions, you're going to want to keep that going because that's, that's basically how you're alive. There's so many fun parts of the game because like, then you have the other side where, I mean, if we go like Weimar inflation levels in the next two years, because something pops somewhere no one was ready for, and next thing you know, the dollars worth nothing, then it doesn't even matter, but you still don't have any currency. That's this thing, right? So (laughs) what's, what's the currency then? Yeah. The problem of malleable currency is the problem of usury because that's a problem of how you measure. And when you can't measure straight, you measure crooked and things go wrong. This is a brief history of power to white guys. I'm going to take that closing word. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. We'll catch you next time.